Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a show about building black and brown wealth through entrepreneurship. Today, we cover the role of family offices in the funding ecosystem. We're here with Karen Warzazik, Principal Senior Director of Financial Planning with a local SEC-registered investment advisory, where she provides financial planning and wealth advisory services to affluent individuals and family offices throughout the United States. Karen, we're going to dive into your background in just a minute and what you do, but let's start with the basics. What is a family office? A family office at a basic level is um, multiple members of a family that are sharing in an enterprise um, around around one or two objectives. So it might have been organized to have a place to run a business. It might be organized because a business sold and the family wants to keep all of the capital from the business sale together um, so that all the stakeholders in the family can operate that and continue to make decisions collectively. And so they're created to, you know, have this collection of capital. And tell us a little bit about what you do with family offices. So what I do with family offices uh, in my role is I'm advising in a couple of different ways. So I'm advising the household level or the individuals within the broader family around um, investment objectives, financial planning objectives, tax planning, and especially uh, philanthropic planning. So the philanthropic planning is kind of a thread that runs through a lot of family offices that organize as family offices for a lot of good reasons, like tax incentives to start, but also because a family oftentimes, especially one of size and significance, have a brand in a community that they identify with, and the community identifies with them as that family that has helped build X, like sub-in initiative. Would that be an example like a Walmart or? Yeah, so if you do, and so, and, and Walmart has a really prominent family office separate from the business of Walmart, but the wealth was originated in the business that is Walmart. And then as those uh, as those earnings come out and as liquidity comes out of the business that is owned by individual family members that's what that family office is organized to help them shepherd through their lives and and meet different a variety of different goals and so i'm an advisor um kind of at a at a very simple level a a a financial planning advisor and impact investment and environmental sustainability advisor, which is also an area that a lot of newer family offices are interested in exploring um, to align mission, and then a traditional investment advisor. Well, and this institution of family office is growing quite a bit. And some of the research we did, it looked like there were about a thousand at least documented family offices just over 10 years ago, and now up to 6,000 in the U.S. So that's a huge growth in just over a decade. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, you, have, you have two different groups of family offices. So you have what we'll call legacy family offices um, that originated in our country at the during the Industrial Revolution um, with very early stage businesses that are known to the U.S., 
those families, those are long storied families of five, six, seven generations. Then you have newer family offices that are originating because we're an entrepreneurial country and we've had some really successful wins with certain entrepreneurs that then organize those new businesses and those the proceeds from those new businesses in a new family office. And then that demographic look look a lot different. And sometimes those are concentrated in certain types of businesses. So a family that um, earned their wealth in commercial real estate, for example, and that's all, that was their space, that was their industry. And then, you know, what do we do with the proceeds from what that businesses generate generating so that other family members can make start to utilize that and leverage that for other ideas other initiatives um, and that's kind of the newer family office the other reason for the number that has grown is really changes in the tax code and so I don't know if we want to get into tax reform here um, but setting establishing a private trust company and a family office this is a way to if you were a newer an, a newer family office who had a business for example and you sold that business but you want to you want to create a legal structure that isn't um, uh, a securities exchange traded fund to, to make it very simple, you can create a private trust company or family office. And, and that helps you retain some control and be a bit more flexible as to what you're going to do with the proceeds from that business. So some of the number could be uh, padded slightly to mm -hmm. that wouldn't, that if you peel it back a little bit, um, some of those wealth owners um, wouldn't look like your typical family office, um, meaning many, many stakeholders, many, many members of a family um, doing a variety of things that feed the family enterprise. That looks a little bit different. Yeah. So and one of the reasons why we wanted to do this show is because our hypothesis in the funding ecosystem is that family foundations and family offices are not tapped as much as they could be with entrepreneurs. And so what role, especially you mentioned impact investment and helping on the philanthropic side, what role do family offices, foundations play in the startup ecosystem? Yeah, they have potential to play an even bigger role to your question, um, which I completely agree. Um, one of the things that family offices are really great about is there's a shared set of values. So different than any other funding mechanism that you can find out there where there might be just there are actors in it, but they have disparate beliefs and disparate set of values. In a family, typically there's a, a shared value that's threaded through that family's capital and how they allocate it. And so where there's potential is a family that really is trying to help a community, um, especially thrive economically, has an opportunity through investments, specific kinds of investments, and on their philanthropic side, grant making, to co-create ways for those um, individual community members that are trying to start businesses that meet both that individual's um, outcome, and then also the family's mission, and that's an untapped resource, really, um, simply because it's it's a it's private, right? So it's not like it's not a listing that's out there that you can find. There are ways to to figure out who who the families are, what kinds of you know do they have foundations? Foundations are publicly reported. Family offices are private enterprises, um, and you can extract some of that by understanding what that family office core objective is. So with that note, I know when I did an internet search, there was a definition of family offices and what it meant, but I didn't see too much else about it. So you brought up a good point 
of what I, the list of families or who owned those offices. I couldn't find it. And you really can't. Um, so, I mean, that, that just is what it is, uh-huh. but the way you back into it. So th- you understand what you understand, what fan, like you found a definition, right? In this example, and then you can, you can figure out, okay, there are certain brand families in our country that are, speci- that are known in specific industries and spaces. Like we mentioned Walmart, right? And, and there's many, and even think about Mark Zuckerberg, right? And mm-hmm. uh, wealth originated in Facebook. He and Priscilla have a family office and a family philanthropy charter, right? And so, but those, you're you're kind of backing into it somewhat through private foundation and non uh, and tax exempt entity searches which are available and so where you can find private foundations and and in bigger names bigger wealth creators you can then kind of figure out if there's a family office that might be tied to that um Oftentimes, a, a family with enough significance, like I said, um, more than likely has some charitable endeavor that is used both for mission, but also for really great gift and tax planning, right? So uh, because of the, the wealth that they've created, um, and then it, both parties benefit, community benefits, and then also the family benefit. So it, could that be the reason why more entrepreneurs don't know about it, or they just don't understand? Just the I whole... think it's both. I okay. think it, it's it's complicated. Even as I listen to myself, and like it, I have the luxury of been, having done this for twenty years, right? And so, but if you don't have a, a command of separating kind of a for-profit or public business from a family business and so putting definition around a family business and then a fam and then the, that family business creating a family office to kind of ring fence their own ecosystem that's hard to get your head wrapped around when you're an entrepreneur over here hyper focused on this really great idea that you have and you're looking to access capital everywhere and and the only public places that you really can find it with ease are places that sometimes are inaccessible so traditional capital markets banks etc are really hard and so for a lot of start startup entrepreneurs and um and especially in the demographic we we talk a lot about with women and people of color, that's even harder to access. And that's where I think there's there's an education and awareness of here are a variety of ways you can access capital. Here's in entities, whether they be family enterprises, family offices, or private foundations that have I have initiatives underway that they're trying to solve for some of the public goodwill that some of these entrepreneurs are also trying to solve mm-hmm. and can be very supportive. And like I was saying earlier, co-creating investment ideas and grant ideas together that meet both of their objectives. Um, because you can access, like I said, in public record, a lot of the private foundation space. Um, you have to report that. There's there's pretty strict rules around distributing and managing that capital. So so it's going to look different than the family office piece, but um, but absolutely there there are funding sources embedded in there, and they're um, widely and and you know underutilized, especially on the foundation side, where you might have an, a very early stage entrepreneur, like a lot of women we know. Right that this is a really great idea. It needs a longer runway. It needs some patient capital, more patient than Wall Street quarterly earnings, 
right? And so that that traditional marketplace isn't going to be ideal, most likely. But where a family who really understands locking up capital for a number of years um, and then also being willing to seed some return for that in the way of alternative grant mechanisms like program-related investments, these are tools that are are absolutely underutilized um, today. Because if you just think about funding, you know, most bankers you go to, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going and you're saying, here's my business plan. Here's my pro forma on all of the financials. Here's where I'm going to get revenue from. And at the stages, I'm going to get revenue. The first question out of a banker's mind is going to be, well, you know, what what happens here if by year one, these hurdles aren't met? That's typically going to come with a penalty or a call of some sort, a capital kind of call for that entrepreneur. So they, they look less desirable from an, a return on investment perspective. So those doors then start to close and then you add other systemic issues to it and then they close even harder right. right so whereas if you kind of think about this this private marketplace this ecosystem that is um, a family office and a private foundation they govern their own banking rules they create them you co-create them on reasonable timelines that meet exactly what that business plan is trying to achieve. And so you're not trying to fit into a big commercial lender's portfolio for uh, kind of concentrated risk. If you uh, kind of think about and appreciate what a, a commercial banker has to do or a commercial bank has to do, they have to organize a portfolio of loans that can weather disruption in the capital markets at various points in time. And so in fairness, that makes it hard to support a lot of entrepreneurs, right? Because it's not going to meet the, this lending portfolio construction that's very important for especially the public banks, publicly traded banks that meet all of the board of directors standards for risk, right? And so, so there, there's the gap. And so the opportunity to solve for that gap is going to heavily be in, um, you know, angel investors, venture capital funds. And even then those come with heavy ROI expectations, yeah. which is why this, the other plug for that gap is in this family office, private foundation space where those don't come with the same expectations because you can create grant making schemes that help solve for where the ROI isn't going to be a, a high risk competitive to a high-risk asset ROI in the traditional investment space. So family offices invest in a wide range of asset classes, and the question is really, and the work that you do with them and advising them, how do they figure out how they want to invest, what they want to invest in, and then setting up that philanthropic support that could be a grant or something else? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So a lot of the initial planning is uh, with for a family office and, and the what they might go out and invest in is rooted in goal setting. So no different than any of us, you're going to come together and decide about specific goals and whether those goals are to meet lifestyle needs of the family, that's going to be a different portfolio construction that needs to probably be a little more liquid, accessible, marketable, all those good things versus then this other goal where you move into the, on if you envisioned a continuum where you're moving to um, longer or more illiquid kinds of investments 
which are the things we're talking about, those are goals that the family then establishes around typically um, uh, starting another business that the family that's different than the family originated and putting capital back into another business that they're the owner of or funding someone else's great idea, creating partnerships with other business ventures. And then that and that's where that's where you have the space that's going to look like a portfolio construction not like the lifestyle one at all it's going to have more freedom to have you know, private offerings in there, um, higher risk assets from that perspective, if you think about the markets, um, because the timeline to return is going to be a lot longer. So that it, it, time is risk, right? So the longer someone has your money, the more risk that you take on as a basic investment principle. So which is why traditional banks have a hard time with entrepreneurs. And so then then they nearly almost many, 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 if not all of the families I've worked with in the family office space have a philanthropic element to it. And that's for a couple of reasons. And so then those goals are different than the prior two goals. Those goals are really about what is the family, how does the family want to be viewed in community? Oftentimes, you know, like I said, reputationally, there might be a need to continue building and supporting parts of the community that are underserved in certain ways, whether it's education, healthcare, um, women entrepreneurs, people of color, and systemic barriers to certain measures of equality. That they, those may become objectives then that that are now live inside of the philanthropic vehicle and that the family owns and governs. And so then those investments are going to be even more funneled into exactly what those mission, the, the variety of missions and those outcomes need to be. And they might settle on as a family one or two or three things that they're trying to solve in the community or support. And community can be, I always say community, but community is kind of what, it's like art, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? So community can be a neighborhood, it can, you can cast the, uh, make the ring a little wider, and it can be a, a state or a municipality or the country. And so people identify with community very differently. Um, and so just to make a point about that, because some are, uh, I have a bi I have a personal bias to proximity and many have heard me talk about this before but I do believe that um seeing the impact of your investment or capital or or even even volunteer time that you have matters a lot if you're in front of it and you touch you can touch it and feel it and you can actually see the effect on the real, the, results, of the real results of it exactly and so for me community is a much tighter circle it's the it's the area in which I'm Ra very real example, raising my child and hope that he he prospers here and is able to employ other members of the community. But that takes ensuring that we have a system that's also growing humans that can meet the demands of kind of what our future demands are in workplace and economic development, right? And so that's that's a local effort. Um, grow all talent essentially and how do we remove barriers to do that philanthropically so an example family could a family could very much that could be a mission that they have is education is closing the education achievement gap for example and every investment then when you unpack it needs to probably feed into 
that particular goal. Have you seen family offices or foundations um, provide philanthropic dollars for an initiative and then turn around and maybe invest in them as an asset class if if they were to expand their business? Have you seen that happen? Yeah, no, I haven't seen the conversion. And that a lot of time is the runway that I'm talking about. So, um, but I do suspect that will be, that will happen in a future state. Um, oftentimes there's exit strategies that are built into kind of that, we'll say grant investment or the co-investment, let's take a program related investment when it returns and its term is over it, you either recognize it, um, as a return into the balance sheet of the private foundation, or you put it back out there in the form of another investment just like that. That's, but it, it wouldn't be the same as say this idea took off, became a, a competitive for-profit business that now you're investing in, that runway is probably a lot longer than converting it to another program-related investment, which is what you typically see. Yeah. But, oh, no, but I was going to say, I think that's the next stage of evolution kind of in in um, kind of the entrepreneurial ecosystem and then also family offices is um, if you're going to back something from a program in even a grant making capacity or program related investment, then your hope really is that it's successful and this is in, this is a real enterprise, right? right? And that's the difference between um, grants. Sometimes solve a couple of pro- a couple of issues. They triage something, mm-hmm. right? So they give emergent funds to people in need, or they allow someone to incubate something that serves the sector broadly and nonprofit. Um, and that's different than program-related investment. So, so if I understand what you're saying, <clears throat> you see the opportunity for entrepreneurs more on the grant side, not on receiving, let's say, dollars into the high asset class, which would be like an angel investment. And so, if you're if you're talking to entrepreneurs to look at those grants, and obviously those entrepreneurs are not nonprofit organizations, right? They're for-profit entities themselves. Um, how do they go about looking for those dollars? What what would they do to kind of um, investigate that? So let's talk a little bit about what it looks like um, to find the, those family offices that they could approach to get those grant dollars. And then I, I don't want to leave this topic without talking a little bit about the downside of getting a grant, right? I mean, it's still non-dilutive funding. So that's awesome from an entrepreneur perspective, but it doesn't count towards an investment. So as an angel investor, when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it, well, it wasn't evaluated in the same way as it would have been if another angel investor would have been writing a check and is expecting it back and not, you know, kind of more of a donation. So let's start with the first one, though. Where would people go to find? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question because you have competing interests, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a family office or a private foundation that can satisfy through grant making and not have to substantiate or have the same worry that that dollar is going to come back, right? And that competes against an entrepreneur who's really looking to um, bolster their their financials with actual investments because that demonstrates confidence, commitment of success, 
right? And so those are competing goals, right? And so one of the things... Although I would guess that most entrepreneurs would be perfectly happy to take the non-dilutive funding, right? Yeah, of yeah, course. Sure so there's, there's, I mean, I think it's you, a, this is great that we're opening up this And it idea. depends what stage they're yeah, at, for too. Yeah, sure. for sure. And it does. And that's actually a good point. So this is a, this idea of incubating something, yeah. that might be the place where you mm-hmm. really... you. You, you take the non-dilutive money um, and demonstrate yeah. over a period of time and then access investment capital. Because mm-hmm. the challenge is, um, and then there are, there are plenty, by the way, of uh, uh, family offices that have an angel investor kind of uh, philosophy, that it's, mm-hmm. it's in their ethos. They, especially the newer, newer family offices, as we started the call, the, um, dialogue with where you have kind of newer family offices that are more modern enterprises that were super successful, right? They have more of a mindset of they're, they're more aligned. They have more of a mindset that, okay, I can take, I'll take a chance. I'll take a risk on a, on an investment and I'll take, it's going to be dilutive. It's going to be an equity stake or it's going to be a debt obligation. It'll be some kind of mix typically, or some conversion in there, but they're expecting some success. They've experienced that themselves. And that's where you're going to have the most, probably the most success at at getting the non moving from say the program related kind of investment or grant investment. And those are two separate things. I know we're using that a lot, but they are in fact two different um, vehicles with two different expectations from an, an actual partnership investment in that new enterprise. And then the way you can find a lot of that, there's, there's a lot of listservs out there that, um, really speak to, um, uh, so big, uh, some of the larger families will have website, they'll have websites oftentimes, their personal websites will actually show the list of objectives that they're interested in the community. And sometimes that marries to the family office enterprise itself. Um, and so that's always a great place to start because it's almost like putting, um, you know, a, a, an RFP out there, and that's a lot of what they do. And there'll be an RFP listed out there and it'll meet, it'll want you to meet certain objectives mm-hmm. and maybe your business does that. Right. And so that's a, that's a place to start. And those are, uh, and you can, you can actually Google some of those ideas um, if you're an entrepreneur, but, but certainly grant maker collectives, like we even have one here in Washington, the Washington regional area grant makers, those are individual grant makers that come together and share best practices, learn about where giving should be centered um, and what the trends of a local community are. So that again, you're back into community and, and meeting individuals that are looking for ways to give away their money. And they want to figure out, is that the highest and best use of my grant in that case, but you can back into, okay, there's a family foundation or fam- family office tied to that grant maker. Um, and that's, that's publicly available, right? So you can find those as well. And a lot of communities, ours has that one, for example, and there's several other that are, that are giving circles, but they're also investment clubs, right? And so investment clubs are a really great, um, I think also, a, a and those are growing to too in number. Yeah, they really are. Um, because it's a great way to, to aggregate smaller, non-qualified what would what would traditionally be non-qualified money um from a um, accreditation standpoint and 
and into an investment club where now you can turn what could be everybody you know, $10,000 a piece into the investment club is now a hundred thousand dollars. And then that club is the entity. It's the, it's the partnership making the investment. Right. And so that, that's a great idea where you, you have an investment club and there's several, there's several around really around the country now kind of, um, surfacing really to address this underfunded situation for women. Right. And so that's a great idea. Um, and they have to register as such, right? So, again, it, I always I always go back to um, if someone has to report financials or disclose certain things about their enterprise, you can probably find it because then that's governed typically by the Internal Revenue Code. And so, so there'll have to be something out there somewhere. You can find a listserv, and there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to do these these kinds of searches that are very targeted. But any publicly available information, and and you can gather, and a lot of it can be gathered into other websites that are nonprofit websites that you then like take an easy example guide guide star right Uh and you can search Uh for um different foundations different nonprofits, but any kind of tax exempt entity and then work from there and say oh actually that's a family that's a family foundation i wonder if they've got a family office tied to that um but you can find giving circles because that's um giving circles and investment clubs and so i think those those ways are available in lieu of traditional banking systems that typically aren't. Um, and they, and they focus on you, you actually find synergy between the values of the community and the values of the family. And so that's the thing that I always stress is that when the investor and the investee aren't aligned in kind of their, their own outcomes for that idea, and typically the values aren't aligned, Mm -hmm. then that's where you typically have a breakdown in, hey, I want my return back quicker than I thought. There's stressors that are placed now on the investee that make that challenging because they're they're reporting back to a governance system within their family. If it's a family office, even though they can make all the rules, they made rules and they're trying to adhere to those and be accountable to some of those, um, particularly on mission and on timeline. Um, like if I'm out in the community saying, gosh, I, I really want to um, ensure that, you know, literacy in, and you can even pick it hyper-local in, in my zip code, um, is improved over a period of time. What are the organizations out there available to me to either invest in, whether it's education technology or to grant to, that are in support of that goal? And when you start putting timelines to it, that's where you've got to find there better be synergy. Can you pull apart for us, you just said a minute ago, that the grant money versus the program money is different. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction between those two buckets? And then we can talk a little bit more about kind of... Yeah, so the um, I'll kind of uh, expand the question slightly just to... Um, program money and so grant money can support the programs themselves what you're creating so 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 to make sure the listeners understand that that grants are in in support of programs that 
live under the umbrella of whatever the, the nonprofit or the private foundation is. What so you're creating is an investment that you're moving out of grant land and you're creating an investment that's a program related. So the keyword related, meaning that, okay, now I'm making it and I'm using investable dollars, dollars that would, would otherwise go to stocks and bonds on the portfolio. I'm now going to peel a little bit of that off and I'm creating this private structure that's a program related investment and that can take the shape of equity or debt. Um, and it meets requirements that are aligned with the organization, but doesn't necessarily have to replicate the programs that live within the organization. So I, I think that was uh, important to uh, clarify just so people don't conflate the two. Um, but that's, that's where that would happen. And that's that co-creation. And, and then there's also plenty of RFPs out there for, um, for program related investments that are, are uh, entrepreneurs that might set up two legal charters. One might set up, here's my for-profit charter. I'm going to appeal to angel funds. I'm going to appeal to venture capital. I'm going to do tradition quasi-traditional things. And then I'm also going to have an, a 501c3 I'm going to establish where I might incubate these uh, non-profit or community ideas that do feed the business model but may not feed the runway that gets the, the ROI that the other capital gets. Um, and that's that partnership. Very similar to like SBIR process. And you think about the SBIR phase one is more for incubation of ideas, 150,000. I think they can go up to 225. Then you go into your phase two and then your phase three. So a phase two is about 1.5 million and phase three can go up, up to 10 million or more. Depending and it's on a how lot light. That's yeah. the right, that's the right, um, analog. And in this, in this case, or you don't have as tight a rails around it. You can kind of define those timelines and cause those are, you know, co-created, but th they follow the same kind of logic though. Like there is this period of incubation and typically you don't see success after certain hurdles are met or milestones um, or right? milestones. Yeah. Yeah. Success milestones. And not all of those uh, milestones in the early days, and many aren't quantifiable, right? They're they're not financial milestones. Sometimes they're um, pipeline building, brand building milestones, um, and then you're converting to financial milestones. Oftentimes, and that's that early milestone for some of these businesses is the hard message to to sell, and that's some of the. Um, my my other hat as kind of a mentor and um, an entrepreneur coach is is wrapped in messaging. How do I actually tell the story of when this when this idea works, who it appeals to, and how it's funded along the way? Right. So a little bit of the the marketing components of it are really important. Um, so that so that the entrepreneur knows, okay, I'm in front of this kind of investor. That isn't going to work. Right, that's going to be that they're not going to be my patient capital ask. Mm -hmm. I'm going to park that for this kind of, and that's that's in the the other mentoring hat. So really talked about a little bit about the growth of family offices over the last ten years, um, and we also read a study that estimates the sixty-eight trillion uh, kind of transfer between generations that it's coming up. Um, and I'm sure you're starting to talk about that and advise your clients about that. But how do you see that affecting change, uh, particularly when it comes to startup ecosystem and some of the things that you're talking about? Is there a mindset change? 
where the younger generations are looking to structure things a little bit differently? Or what do you think is going to be, um, how are you hoping to see uh, this uh, wealth transfer impact? And yeah, and it's a, it's a very big number over the next couple of decades. And um, some accounts are exceed $80 trillion, right? And so over three three generations. And so the first one happening kind of that we're in now. And the exciting part about this, and I do talk about this, I talk about this with, with clients and hosted even at our firm, a women's event um, last fall on, on, on values and charitable giving primarily, but at the root of it was uh, women are, are by majority expected to receive and become the owner of most of that wealth first, right? So a lot of that calculation is not the next generation just yet, but it's women actuarially outlive men. So surviving spouses, well, now for the first time, women will be the owners of more wealth than men in the country by way of that first transfer. And so how are, and women are supportive of providing capital and or other supports to other women. Um, so the polling tells us, right? The next generation um, is part uh, part of that next transfer wave is happening at the, at the same time, a little bit of it, um, but then also another 10 years later. And so all of the money that's transferring isn't going to be, it's not going to live in the same investment vehicle in the same strategy or even family foundation. The next generation in the millennials really pull quite heavily to wanting freedom to make different investments that meet more of kind of how they feel their place in the world is right now, right? They're a good example is they um, embrace uh, job mobility, like no other generation really has, right? So they, and so the, the changing landscape of the workforce, you know, they're, they're going to have seven careers, not seven jobs, but seven careers that probably translates to 20 plus jobs, right? And so they really are, are, are entrepreneurial, they're risk takers in that way. Whereas earlier generations, tended to, you know, I'm going to have this job. It's got a great pension. Those Stay are, in the job pensions for are all, years. that's right. And pensions are dead. Um, right. those are gone. And so people next generation have really learned that, Hey, I'm in this, I've got to, I've got to find my way. And I, I don't want to be held. I don't want to be held hostage to kind of a, something that comes with corporate bureaucracy. Sometimes it can stifle create creativity. Whereas the entrepreneur who tends to be hyper creative needs the freedom to do that. And, and those two groups of people are well matched to fund the other. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I do see more, uh, patient capital getting into the hands of founders, early stage founders in particular, women founders, mm -hmm. um, people of color, because we, we are in a movement where we're acknowledging that we have to really address some systemic barriers. And so the next generation are leading a lot of that, right? And um, which is why I think you'll see more capital get in the hands of a much more diverse set of entrepreneurs, um, which is a, a really good thing, right? Because that's what will lift out, lift communities out of poverty. That's what will close the achievement gap. All of the things that are keeping keeping people not prospering economically, 
that will that will start to address. It's a long game, right? This is this is a long game. We've all been at it for decades now, and we're still at it, right? So, um, but I'm hopeful, and it's a lot of capital to hopefully inform. It's a lot of opportunity. It's too. a lot of opportunity, and I view, I view it that way. And so, our job, I think, our charge is to keep educating and informing what the need, where the need is greatest. Um, uh, from a, what kinds of businesses um, should we be supporting mm-hmm. that help promote some of the change that that generation wants to see for their own future and for their children? Um, it'll be that matchmaking that will evolve. Before we dive into our questions around DC and the and the specifics of what you see here in our ecosystem versus across the country, um, tell our listeners a little bit about how family offices are structured and knowing that there's like a, a big distinction between them. But um, what would you look at for a family office? I mean, in my mind, and I know nothing about family offices really, I think about, okay, they're probably structured like a small company is. Um, but tell us a little bit more about what we should expect or if, what someone should expect if they're going to approach a family office. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question because, um, every single family office is different from the other, right? So it organizes because it was rooted in a particular industry. So take, for example, commercial real estate. So in the D in the DC area that has created so much wealth for some families that are brands on our commercial real estate, that organizes a family office. And so that's going to look very different. And they're all organized in legal structure, uh, privately held, typically in um, corporate status of limited liability or some other structure, or even a trust structure. So so th- that doesn't matter so much. Um, it's just that it's, it's private, meaning it's going to be harder to access exactly what they're understand, exactly what they're doing and what they're looking to invest in. But like I said before, you can kind of back into back into that family a little bit by how did the wealth originate? What was the family enterprise that, mm-hmm. that seeded that? Um, those are always really good clues for me. Um, they help, they help you kind of understand the family dynamic a little bit too. And, and you know, how many generations are involved and engaged and is the business still operating or did it, did it liquidate? And now it's a family office serving really only the needs of the household from an investment and charitable and day-to-day standpoint. And it looks very different than I've lived in um, three major cities in this country throughout my adult life. So um, New York City, um, Seattle, Washington, and uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, I identify with D.C. as my home. I've been here the longest, um, and it's where I, I view community. But family offices I worked with on the West Coast and the Pacific Northwest are very different than families that I've worked with in on the East Coast and even different from New York to Washington because uh, like all things, a community kind of grows because of what the, the people that inhabit it and the enterprises that are important for that community. And that's what that governs the how the family office is doing the work that they're doing, how they decide to do that. In Seattle, um, politically a very different um, environment than here and then in New York. Um, and so with that come uh, a lot of a lot greater appetite for funding either in 
for-profit business ideas or nonprofit ideas, things that alleviate social ills, right? So there's a lot of focus on um, the environment there. So how can, you know, uh, hyper, hypersensitive to um, how do we solve some of the environmental issues we're all talking about today and that the next generation certainly are um, clued in on and want to help solve? You're going to see a greater degree of impact orientation from different families based on their geography, based on the kind of business that generated the wealth. Um, and so it's a good bit on the entrepreneur's part to do some research, right? And, and there's no there's no panacea to figuring it all out. It's like you've got to dig in and figure out who your local actors are. Um, for those businesses, do the research on them and figure out where you meet, how you can meet them where they're at in what they're trying to do in the community and fund it um, in whatever vehicle that takes to, to get that done. And it's going to be different uh, in, the, in the geography. And then I grew up in Kansas, so also a very different place where um, mixed industry, but largely around agribusiness. And that's a different wiring and in a, a very um, um, close uh, definition around family and family enterprise looks different than say in Washington DC where you'll see you know you, some legacy families that go back a couple generations or three but not typically whereas in other parts of the country you might mm -hmm. see that family business originated in the Midwest or um, out on the West Coast and it's two, three, four, five generations, which changes, changes the answer, right? So like they always say in the family office space, there's a, there's a wonderful group called, um, and this is what I would uh, share with the listeners as well, is it's Family Office Exchange. And it's a forum that family offices subscribe to because they're in a unique business that they don't have peers, right? So I'm in a business as a financial and investment planner. I have a lot of peers I can go find to, to do research with, to collaborate with, to do best practice and thinking around. Family offices don't. They stand alone as their own family office. And again, how they originated informs what they're doing next somewhat. So Family Office Exchange is a really great network that families subscribe into um, and, and also can serve as a listserv of sorts. But that's another place where people can actually go in and, and search for and kind of engage with those families through that platform um but but they don't have they don't have peers right mm -hmm. so then they're and, and sometimes co-investments are born out of that network one family you know family office meets another family office and they're like hey well, they work to we're trying to do the yeah we're trying to do the same thing mm -hmm. here let's be creative um entrepreneurs are, are are wonderfully creative right we'll reimagine all the rules right and it's it's great fun. Have you seen anyone do that? An entrepreneur? Co-investment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so co-investments. Okay. Um, and they're they're usually uh, either families have known each other, it's built they on know trust that too. it's built on trust. There's a there's a history there, there's a demonstrated success record there. Um, but absolutely families and, and uh, like even the private Ford individuals. family and Firestone, although they oh, fell yeah, they, out because of the tire in incident. But right <laughs> separately. <laughs> But, that's, that's, but the that's idea is the same. Right. The idea is the same. Right. It's like families can come together and they can um, incubate an idea and co-invest an idea and have a partnership. Um, and then they're both seeding capital into that 
Um, and that's that's actually, I would say, fairly popular among families. And, and they're all private, um, private deals that, that are just for them um, until they get big enough and they can spin off into something else. Which is, you know, as we think about the entrepreneurs that we serve, is it's exciting that that can happen. It's also nerve-wracking because it could leave out a whole um, number of people. But let's let's talk a little bit about D.C. So I know D.C. Uh, um, uh, D.C. did a, under Mayor Bowser, a report called the Pathways to Inclusion Report. And a part of that really talked about the access to capital in the D.C. region and focused on the fact that D.C. has like 220,000 high net worth individuals and ranked number four nationally in terms of wealth creation. And I know you're doing a lot but of work. concentrated. This, but very concentrated. Mm-hmm. So love to talk about what the landscape is around the family offices here in the D.C. area and kind of the activity. And, and if you can think about the lens from uh, an assumption that uh, – the D.C. area is really risk adverse and capital is not moving as we all would like it. So what, what are your thoughts? Just yeah, in it's interesting. But yeah, I, I did like what uh, Mayor Bowser did in that initiative. And and a lot of the, a lot of that kind of targeted in communities that are underrepresented that we were talking about earlier. Right. And so we do boast a wealthy you know, among the wealthiest zip codes or regions in the areas in the country. Um, but it's largely in the hands of fewer people, right? So even saying even the number that you said and the number of households, uh, but if you look at the region broadly, I mean, it eclipses it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so part of the solve, what I'm, what I'm seeing locally through a couple of initiatives, um, and not just that one, that has actually spurred programs through um, that you, you, may, you may know of through um, City First um, and also Washington Area Community Investment Fund that have attracted because they're, because part of a, an initiative being successful or trying to achieve or solve something, create more inclusion for capital, for example, in this case, needs policy support. Like, I don't think anyone would disagree that even at a local or a national level, if there isn't policy supporting it, it's probably going to fall down somewhere. Um, because policy support tells the investor that, okay, this isn't just going to be kind of li- the rug isn't going to be pulled out from under me if I take a chance on helping improve that situation, whatever it is. And so that's why policy matters. Policy doesn't isn't tied to funding from the same pool, right? But policy matters. And um, but it's attracted actors to come into and help help wake it, for example, grow and expand into parts of a region where there isn't capital. And those are some projects I've even worked on. And so you can come and take Ward 7 and Ward 8, where you have entrepreneurs who want to stay in their local community, um, but they can't be successful without policy and or without something that looks and feels like traditional capital. And so you have other major money center banks coming in and supporting D.C., through and get and we've gotten some attention with major publicly traded money centers helping create programs and put capital directly into the communities which is helping spur some some of the entrepreneurs and opening that up and either through small business loans or through community development loans through programs like WAKEFs. And and that's necessary and and so that's hap- happening and and the fact that um 
you know, the tax code uh, allows for this opportunity zone um, investment that some people, and that's been kind of a really a, a big buzzword um, for the past, or, or I guess new product, if you will, for the past year, but effective January. Now investors, some of the, the numbers we expressed in the, in the wealthiest of the community can convert some of their investments in a tax neutral or t- tax offsetting way or with there's some other criteria to that, and I've written a paper about this. Um, and put put that as long as that money is going into these qualified zones, right? And so, and a lot of those qualified zones are the same zones Muriel Bowser is talking about that are exclude are excluded from capital traditionally. So there's starting to be so with Paul, and that's policy, right? But policy incentivizing private capital over here to say, hey, we'll keep the, we'll, we'll, if we keep the governance intact, we will support your investment over this, these hurdle time rates. And it's got three different timeline tranches tied to it in that example. But, but all of that's happening locally. Um, no, thanks for bringing that up. Because when we really talk about the ecosystem, you're right, it's not just the entities, it's the policy that is around them and the communication between the entities. So thank you for bringing up Wakeif. We actually had Harold on the show to talk about what what Wakeif is doing um, and the partnerships that they have with J.P. Morgan Chase and Calvert Foundation and Capital Impact Partners. And so it's great just to see that the the, um, presence of policy also activates and mobilizes. Because it tells these these other institutions, okay, this is... There's stability, right? And so, like all things, without stability, we're, we get we feel vulnerable, and that we're taking on more risk than we should be. And policy creates stability, whether you agree with the policy or not. But it creates stability. And part of the problem with DC, and it's funny, you kind of started the question with DC is a, a bit risk averse, and DC is an interesting um, perceived risk adverse. It is, yeah, it's perceived. I mean, we never know what it actually really is yeah. here, right? But <laughs> but what's interesting is. D- and I've always I've always said this is DC when you go and you look back with a national lens, people don't decouple DC from the federal government initiatives or the federal government policies. And that therein lies some of the issue is that we get thrown into kind of the national radar, even though we're not even part of it. We're not part of that. We stand alone. We have our own almost municipality-like governance. Um, but but the rest of the country doesn't see that. And then it makes uh, kind of a D.C. resident or D.C. taxpayer a little bit gun-shy, right, to think about how does policy, is it truly local policy or are we projecting federal policy into D.C. initiatives, right? So, so as, a, as a storyteller... If um, um, and, and, and storyteller on your end, what um, if you were to try and attract outside money into D.C., what are the three things you would say to attract that money in? Or, or to retain the money here. Yeah, I, I, and and the the great thing about D.C. is now we have more and more people with every passing five and ten year period being from D.C., right? It is less transient. And so that's a story. That's a story that doesn't tell it is less transient. I'm raising my son here. He's probably never going to leave, right? And he's essentially all but born here. He was here just a few months after he was born. But it's less transient. So the 
national story, you need to reconcile that with the national story and that, oh, D.C. kind of caters to uh, the change in administration. Pocket does, for sure, the people that are supportive and are part of that process. But largely the economy is so so diverse now here and so much stickier um, as evidenced by even, you know, winning the bid to have Amazon Q, HQ2 here. And so I think the story, disrupting that story of transient needs to happen because no one wants to invest in something. This goes back to stability. No one wants to invest in something that has the, even the appearance of instability and people relocating and moving and economics being disrupted through that mobility isn't ideal. So it means, oh God, I've got a four-year clock. That's not that's not good. That's a very interesting spin because I've never thought about that before. Uh, more and more people are moving here and they're staying and they're raising their families here. That's right, and and they have jobs here, and mm-hmm. and so we're we're funding community. schools and community. We're building community around all of that. Um, some people here don't know what's going on at the national level, right? And so, right. but the national investors are like, anything I'm doing for D.C., oh, I must be doing. For the federal government, right? Yes, it's a massive employer here. Yes, but those the people that it, they, that employs on most of the federal government side stay here and they're here, right? And and then all these other uh, enterprises that have sprung up and and entrepreneurs were, were kind of a hotbed for entrepreneurs. And when you think about the DMV in particular, not just the district, but Virginia boasts a a really high record in uh, supporting entrepreneurs and growing those numbers. And Virginia Um, Tech is building an innovation campus, George Mason. So the universities are now putting a lot of money into... That's right. And and you build something when you know this, and this is, you know, my theory is you don't build it unless you know those stakeholders have some somewhere that they can land that skill with, right? Like that that's capitalism, right? So I'm going to create a program because I've identified a talent gap right in its backyard. And that's why those programs will be successful. And that's why they're necessary because now you have all these businesses that are tech-oriented businesses, especially the tech corridor out off of 267. And it's like, so if you're a university and you're kind of rethinking curriculum design, I'm going to say, okay, I can create something here that helps land you a job right here, not ship you off to the other coast. Exactly. And then you have more people staying that's, in the area. That's, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And people yeah. stay. Yep. You and get a job, you stay. Right? And we're right on the cusp of that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You get seven or 20 jobs, right? You said 20 jobs. Kids yeah. will have 20 mm-hmm. jobs. They'll all be here in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, and you can live in three states. No, so that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, so not being, so funny, not being native Washingtonian, um, I've always kind of defined myself as river neutral, right? So I don't identify. <laughs> Potomac keeps coming up in our. It's like I'm like I'm like I don't you're care. Supposed to pick one side, yeah. I'm like I'm like if you're if you're in the district and in the area and you need and you need my help, um, I don't care where you're at, right? Well, let me say <laughs> this: I think the district. District is more so. Let's pick one side. I think now, yeah, they're willing to cross mm-hmm. over. Whereas I think Maryland and Virginia, we've always been willing to cross and over. And there's and the districts, it's confined by it's confined. It's a it, the square miles. It's it's it, 
it's confined. It can't go anywhere else. Right. You run into the water on one side. Mm-hmm. You're in Maryland on the other. Um, Virginia, you can keep kind of growing out west right. and, and they spring are. up new businesses, and they really are. Mm-hmm. And so if you're sitting there and you're feeling kind of locked in the D.C. grid, you're like, okay, well, maybe I maybe I go get them become employed there where there's and i heard it's happening i heard more and more people we just had Mm -hmm. this conversation yesterday where it was actually with a police officer and he said you will be surprised he's a police officer for dc uh, DC. he said you'll be surprised how many people are coming over from dc into virginia because then that's the other uh, kind of social ill that we have right as service people in a lot of cities in our country can't live in the cities that they're protecting mm-hmm. and serving. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have this, this sprawl that is meeting that need. Um, and it's, you know, it helps, helps the communities that are recipients of the sprawl. Mm-hmm. Right. But it maybe isn't the best thing for social policy for those workers that need to be there quickly. I know you're very, very active in the D.C. community. Very. You're at a lot of the pitch competitions. You're a lot of, at a lot of the networking events. Um, a lot of boards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely a lot of boards. I know you've mentored some entrepreneurs as well. Which, what would you say is most attractive to you? Or do you think a family office might be attractive to a, a particular entrepreneur? Not a, you don't have to name that entrepreneur, but maybe. Yeah, what can't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, about what they're doing or how, what, you know, what would you make say, you know what, we might be interested in perhaps might invest in them? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Because oftentimes, they'll see entrepreneurs and they're not a couple aren't, aren't lining up the need of the community mm-hmm. with with what they're trying to launch, they really need national funding for what's hap- for what they're trying to work on. Versus um, so if it's a local family office, for example, that has certain investment objectives and has certain even philanthropic objectives that come back to community focus, mm-hmm. they're not aligned and they're not going to be interested. They're going to be like, you need, you need kind of bigger dollars from a national lens, whether it's a venture capital or an angel investor. Um, but if you can line up and figure out with the family office or the private foundation that, hey, their key areas of focus are these two th- two or three, and you're an entrepreneur that's, that's going, actually, I've developed this this education technology project. I've been working on it in Ward 7 and 8. Maybe that's squarely lined up with their objective of achieving and closing the uh, achievement gap, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. like start to do some research. And so, what I think um, sometimes entrepreneurs don't do that I've that I've mentored. There's a lot of research about what they're developing, but not where it needs to best best end up in what community and in what what's my what's where does the deliverable end up and is this the right place for it. Right. And that's, that's sometimes not aligned. Um, and if it isn't get this, re, reshape the story so that you can say, Hey, I actually didn't see that gap here. I was thinking about, you know, my hometown back in Kansas when I was coming up with this brilliant idea. Right. And, um, and helping kind of turn that story into something that does feel relatable to the funder. Because mm-hmm. like all things, we invest in something that's relatable. We give to something that we sometimes have had a personal experience or uh, have been a recipient of ourselves. Um, we all attach personal and emotional ties to money, whether it's 
taxable money or not, but we're emotionally tied to money. Um, and so that's, that's the storytelling piece is helping an entrepreneur make that relatable, make that ask relatable. Um, and sometimes they're like all of us, we can't be equipped to do everything well. Right. Mm -hmm. we, mm -hmm. And that's why you, you seek mentors, you seek, seek coaches and you pay for advisors sometimes and, um, to help you with some of those blind spots. So tell us how you got into working with family offices because you have a very interesting story. Yeah, no. So I and so I I got into this profession not in a typical way. So when I was first out of school, my degree is in finance. I so kind of a very typical um, uh, path in uh, university and chose a degree that I felt I could be employed pretty instantly. Right, I would graduate, and this was was is what it is it was a finance degree so i could do a lot of different things and so my first job was really auditing what are what look like family businesses so i audited closely held businesses in the midwest that are agribusiness in nature um and they all had we didn't use the word family office we didn't really have that we and and or family business there were businesses that had happened to have family members that owned and operated them and that's what they did. And so through kind of really understanding the family enterprise through that experience, joined a large money center in kind of the, the trust and estate side of the business. And that, that flipping, flipping the coin over and now working on the other side of it where I'm now looking at investments for those same families where they are aggregating money and accumulating money and one, two, three, four generations need to think about that together. So I developed an, an expertise around really collective asset ownership. So thinking about all of the members in the family and how they might leverage that same family money for individual goals, but centered around their own, the family's values. Um, and then that led me to family office and working with uh, three you know, prominent families in our country um, on a variety of issues, obviously the planning and investing, but developed um, a passion for, uh, I've always had a passion for specialty assets, which is why I um, really love the entrepreneurial side of the work I do, um, but also the impact oriented and environmental and sustainable and really digging in deep with a family, um, all three of them, but um, but in particular, one where I really cut my teeth on kind of mission to line investing um, more than more than 15 years now. And that's that's really what got me interested in this space that um, where there, there's a mission, there's an alignment for um, elevating you know, women, um, improving economic disparity in a community. And that nexus I found in in the in the investment in the philanthropy space. Um, and felt like in family in the family office um, demographic uh, willingness to explore a bit more um, for all the reasons we've talked about there you can create what you want you own it you own the capital you're not beholden by a public entity of any kind and so you get to be creative and I I like environments um, and working with people that um, that are charged by that, right? They really like being around creative people and that it enhances what they're doing. So whether it's my philanthropic hat or whether it's my investment planning hat, 
um, they're both rooted in this ability to help someone create. It must be hard for someone to leave a job working with a family office because I feel like it's it's more than a job. Sometimes you get really ingrained with the family. You do a you do so you do a lot of there's a lot of household household admin, personal stories. But it, the way the structure works now is um, you're really in a multifamily office. So when you work in an umbrella that is a registered investment advisory or another structure where you're dealing with many families and it might be more than one generation and of significant wealth, they have the same, they ha- they're constructed the same way behaviorally, um, uh, but in, in kind of a shared environment of a multifamily office, which is also a, a popular um, model that has emerged over the past decade uh, for a lot of reasons around economics. So not having, so you can share um, financial planners, share investment planners, share talent that you're not, you don't have to own yourself. Um, and, it, and that's a very, very popular model for families to kind of engage firms to knowing that, okay, there's all these other families you serve as clients. Um, and then it gives you freedom to work with other individuals if they're not tethered to big families, which is just as important, mm-hmm. right? Individuals have um, a lot of the same goals. Um, it may not come with the 100-year the story that uh, some families have. Especially so. in the D.C. area. That's so. right, yeah, and, and foundations that stand alone. Or- so, Karen, before we let you out of here, we'd like to ask you... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I want to ask this question, and it's probably two questions in one. You can answer it how you'd like to. It's who's doing really great work that our listeners need to know about, or what is a current project your organization is working on that more people should know about? Sure. Um, so an organization I think is doing really great work, um, helping to energize and mobilize entrepreneurs and female founders in particular is her impact. So an initiative founded by the Ford motor company, um, that has put significant capital into many cities in this country has grown recipients of those pitch competitions, um, which I've been a part of, um, have, have yielded a lot of results, big results for some of those winners. Um, and it started here. And it started in D.C. So uh, I had the good, maybe serendipity um, to be part of that inaugural team to build that. And so I've been, I, I helped promote it. I've tracked it in the other cities. Um, that's really energizing. And, and in part success, it's having, it's backed by a really big brand, right? This gets back to who's, who's creating the stability to keep something going. And so then new, new founders come in and go, okay, that's, that's serious, right? Um, and those are really great reward, uh, monetary rewards for these women that are winning the competitions. Um, so that's really great. Um, our firm on the um, investment side, um, I co, I'm co-launching, well, not launching, but co-leading the expansion of our impact-oriented platform. So really building a platform that delivers and answers some of the uh, social and governance and environmental and uh, needs that some of our clients have and expanding that, uh, making that available to everybody. So um, so that's been really, really going strong and a, a year plus in the making. So really proud of that. Well, thank you for all of the work that you personally put into entrepreneurs and working just across the stakeholders in not only the D.C. area, but nationally. Thank I, lo- you. I love talking with you guys. This has been so fun. We enjoyed having you here in studio with us. 
Check out all of our shows on your preferred podcast platform. Subscribe and write us a review. Don't forget to get all the show notes, key takeaways, and quotes on our website, getfoundgetfunded.com. And catch us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.